to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Here we go, Soccer Morning coming at you on a Wednesday, the first uh, first web show of the week. I'm all kinds of thrown off here. On Monday, uh, wait, we, we, we were here on Monday, weren't we? I was here Monday. Maybe I'm thrown off because of yesterday and not being able to do a show yesterday because it was so cold out there. It's still cold, and now D.C. is getting ready for some epic snowstorm, the likes of which we have never seen before. And if you know anything about the D.C. Metro, uh, you know the panic that sets in for the populace when there's snow coming. A, I, I'm surprised that schools have not already been canceled two days ahead of the event. Let's just say that that's where we're all, we are with the snow event coming for D.C., so I am a bit distracted, but we do have a lot of soccer to cover for you this morning on Soccer Morning. Very excited to be back again. Bo Durr is going to join us in just a couple of minutes. We're going to talk to Bo. It's Look, this is going to seem boring on the surface. It's not. Trust me. We're going to talk about the birth year registration change for youth soccer in the United States of America as dictated by U.S. soccer. Okay, Now, again, that sounds like boring stuff. Sounds like paperwork. It's going to matter. You're going to want to listen to this discussion. This is big ramifications on everybody, not just the elite kids. In fact, this, there may be an argument that this is built for the, the elite kids and leaves everybody else in the lurch. So we will talk to one of the foremost experts on the youth soccer experience, a man who's written a book on the very topic, Boater, in just a couple of minutes. Let's hit the news, though, because there's a lot to cover here before we get to Bo. We start in Los Angeles, California, where MLS held a media day yesterday. Numerous players from around the league appearing, speaking to reporters. Lots of stuff coming out there. Uh, Steven Gerrard, Andrea Pirlo. I watched some ESPN FC and, and saw Robbie Keane and Giles Barnes and Kaka appear on television and do a very good job. The headlines coming out of this event, though, all relate to sporting Kansas City midfielder Benny Failhaber. Benny Failhaber... Obviously a player, former U.S. youth, uh, former U.S. international who has not had a chance under Jurgen Klinsmann. Lots of discussion as to why, but we, uh, we now have a, we reached a point where Benny has accepted the fact that he's never going to get called up and gone ahead and taken a flamethrower to any bridge between him and Jurgen Klinsmann. I don't know what the reason is, Failhaber said to uh, reporters on Tuesday. I don't know if Jurgen doesn't like these players. He doesn't like their attitude. He doesn't like their faces. He thinks they are ugly. I don't know. If you ask me, it can't possibly be based on on-field performances. There are plenty of guys in MLS that have had better seasons than other guys in MLS or other countries that are getting opportunities for the national team. I've accepted the fact that Jurgen's not going to call me. If I played the, the year that I played this last year and I'm not getting a call, then I'm not going to get an opportunity under Jurgen. In regards to how a coach should approach a team, there are two duties. One is to make the best possible team that you can possibly make with the players that are available to you, and two to try to continuously improve that team so that team does not stall in any way and continues to improve. For me, Jurgen seems to try to do the second one without doing the first one. He would rather put young guys on the team that potentially could become somewhat important on the team, and he leaves out players that could make the team better right now. That's the number one job of the national team coach, not to make the team as good as he can make it in five years, to make it as good as he can make it now and continuously improve it. In that way, he does not do his job. There are other players in the player pool that do not get called, uh, get called in that have performed well enough on the field to get an opportunity. Uh, Failhaber went on identifying Dax McCarty specifically, um, a guy uh, he says that can sit in the pocket, allow Michael Bradley to operate in front of him. I think he does that in a way that is better, or at least competes with people who are trying to do the same thing on the national team right now. So again, Benny Failhopper holding court, to, uh, taking a flamethrower to his relationship with Jurgen Klinsmann. If, if anything existed at this point, we'll see if there's a, there's fallout. We'll certainly discuss Benny and his attitude and ask if he's right about Jurgen Klinsmann later on in the program. The German FA has announced that they are supporting UEFA General Secretary Johnny Infantino to replace Sepp Blatter as FIFA president. The German FA co-president Reinhard Rabel said Gianni Infantino is the European's candidate and the best one. Through his work as General Secretary of UEFA, he knows all aspects of the game, has outstanding international connections, and speaks six languages. With his reputation and experience, he meets the necessary conditions for structural changes 
and to take on the challenges ahead. Infantino has uh, issued his manifesto, his plan uh, for what he will do as FIFA president. He's proposing a uh, a world, a regional World Cup notion, spreading the World Cup across many countries, uh, multiple host countries, in addition to promising an increase in what FIFA spends on football development by 50%. There's also transparency in salaries and, and term limits and that kind of stuff that is uh, pretty much part and parcel of the, pro- of the candidate uh, process right now at FIFA. It remains to be seen if anyone will actually follow through on these things. Chelsea is reportedly lining up a move for Brazilian forward Pato. The 26-year-old is currently at Sao Paulo on loan from Corinthians. Pato joined AC Milan in 2007, but after three and a half strong seasons with the Italian Giants, he suffered an, uh, a string of injuries that uh, ultimately ended up with him back in Brazil. He's been targeting a move to to, uh, to England, and apparently he's going to get his wish here. No reports on the fees, but uh, it looks like Goose Hitting wants to reinforce the forward core there at Chelsea. And Pato could be the man to come in and help. He did score uh, quite a few goals during his stint at AC Milan. 51 goals in 117 appearances uh, for Milan. All right. Uh, Chile head coach Jorge Sampioli has officially resigned his position after agreeing to a cancellation of his contract with the Chilean FA. Sampioli led Chile to the 2015 Copa America title. And the Argentine will now uh, has now been linked to a move to Chelsea, although... Uh, you know, again, there are numerous candidates for that job and no direct links between Sampioli and a, and a move to Chelsea. Manchester City manager Manuel Pellegrini, a Chilean himself, says he will not return to his co- home country to replace Sampioli, despite rumors that Pep Guardiola is going to replace him and Manchester City this summer. So there's your intrigue on the managerial front uh, on a Wednesday. Real Salt Lake has completed the signing of Yuramov Sissian, the former RSL forward who left for Europe in 2010. 28-year-old had stops in Denmark at Randers uh, and in Russia, where he scored 48 goals in 112 appearances between Krasnodar and Spartak Moscow. The way this deal is structured, it, it seems Mofsisian's returning to MLS on loan from Spartak Moscow for, a, for one year, and he will take up one of RSL's designated player positions. Um, this is a great signing for RSL in terms of of getting a line leader who can score some goals. There's no doubt that Yermov Sissian is one of the more clinical goal scorers MLS has produced over the past uh, decade or so. A guy will, that will help them immediately. The question is whether or not they can get him the ball on a consistent basis. It's going to be up to, obviously, an aging Javier Morales, who still uh, is effective, uh, Luke Mulholland, a couple other players, in that mix for RSL as they look to rebuild under Jeff Kassar after missing out on the playoffs for the first time in seven years, I believe, uh, on the Wasatch front there in Utah. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Bo Durr will join us. Noted soccer author, single-digit soccer, his latest effort on the youth game. We're going to talk youth game. Birth year registration. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Facing the crowd. You're talking too loud. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. All right, we're back on Soccer Morning on a Wednesday. None of my buttons are working, but that's okay. We do have an excellent <laughs> guest on the line, Bo Durr, the author of Single Digit Soccer, Keeping Sanity in the Earliest Ages of the Beautiful Game, which you can find at Amazon.com. It's available on your Kindle for 5 bucks. It's a pretty damn good deal. Bo, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm, I'm preparing for the snowstorm, just like you. I, exactly. Bo and I both uh, DC Metro uh, residents, and, and I imagine it's batting down the hatches time at the uh, Durr household. Uh, it's also batting down the hatches time in a lot of the youth soccer circles in this country, Bo. Uh, you and I both uh, attended the NSCAA convention. I imagine you took a little bit more of a tour through some of the uh, the elements that are that make up the the base of the game in this country, meaning the the coaches who are coaching at some some of these youngest levels. And, and one of the topics of the day was, or of the weekend, was the birth year registration change. Now, again, I laid this out there for people. It sounds boring. It's really important. Give me a sense of, of what we're talking about in terms of birth year registration change. 
Right. Well, the, the typical registration now is sort of an August to July year. It's roughly mirroring the school year. And in practice, it means that uh, kids can play with their classmates. I mean, most places will give you, I mean, our local club here will offer, if you're born in that August to September range between the start of the soccer year and the start of the school year, uh, they'll usually let you just play up so that you can play with your classmates. Mm-hmm. And so it provides a nice, comfortable uh, easing into the game uh, for young players, especially for young players. Uh, at the older edges, and even with you know elite teams, uh, there are elite teams that are that say we've been together for six years, and you're going to bust us all up now because we're going to change. The change is supposed to go to the birth year. Now there there are two reasons why I've heard you trying to insist to listeners why this is important. I can give you two reasons why this is important for people who don't even have any kids. One, uh, youth soccer participation rate. Uh, by some measures, are dropping. Uh, it's all uh, figures given by Project Play, which is a really neat thing. The ESPN reporter Tom Ferry was involved with it. Uh, dropped from 5.6 million to 5.0 million in a six-year span, 2007-2013. And this birth year mandate will drive some more people out of the game. The fewer players you have, the fewer elite players you have. Yep. The fewer fans you have. Yeah. The smaller the soccer community becomes, and that's not something any of us want to see. Second, the way these mandates, it's not just uh, soccer, it's not just birth year, but small-sided games, and to some extent the heading initiative, although that's on a little different plane, uh, it's causing the question the basic competence of U.S. soccer, the federation, and how it's been rolled out, how there's an appalling lack of communication. I'll give you a, a simple example from the panel I was in that had Eric Imler, who you should have on the show sometime because he is funny and, and sharp, and uh, Sam Snow from USU Soccer, Ian McMahon from uh, AYSO, a couple more people. And I raised the question in that panel where I said, look, you know, what are you all doing given the fact that U.S. Soccer is telling people and some clubs have realized, like Arlington, a club that, you know, again, Northern Virginia, fairly big club, not development academy, but a national contender in some age groups. And they're saying they're going to keep their rec program on the school year. And fortunately, a guy from Arlington Soccer was sitting about six rows behind me and, and reiterate, yeah, we're keeping the programs like that. The executive director of AYSO did not realize that was an option. <laughs> so... That's how well this has been communicated. Okay, so so you, we've identified a communication issue. I think for me, that's the most troubling thing that I heard there at the convention, and 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 numerous people talking about an opportunity for U.S. soccer to to get a, get that information out. Or previous to this, I mean, we are talking about something that was originally proposed back in when August. So or, or put mm-hmm. forward back in August. Why has U.S. soccer? been slow to to communicate because because the the other sense i get and i've seen this discussion on twitter bone you can tell me if this is right or wrong is that people people are portraying this as something built for the elite players which is why you know tab ramos is is all for it but may leave the rec players behind if there wasn't an option to fix to to to, to stick with with uh, school year Right, and I think most people under, understand it at the elite level. And the development academy already plays on birth year, although there's a complication. There's a rabbit hole we probably don't want to go down where the development academy is going to be playing one year off from everybody else next year uh, because there's just some ink, some little wrinkle they didn't really think through, which is, again, another another issue. But I don't, no one's objecting to the Development Academy being birth year or, you know, the Development Academy is going to start for girls too. No one's going to object to that. And other programs, ODP and so forth, they're all on, on birth year. And that makes sense because, you know, those programs, uh, you, you can have international competition in there, not just the national teams, but, uh, you may have teams at that level who are playing, you know, U18s from Barcelona or, you know, from Mexico and so forth. And so it made sense for that top level to to be on birth year. You can you can phase into that. I mean, you can have everything be school year through U twelve and keep your rec program yeah. again. Arlington is keeping it uh, school year all the way through high school. So 
you can keep the rec program like that, and you can keep lower level travel even on a on a school year, and then phase into it for the elite level programs. And I don't understand why that's not really an option. It seems, and the impression some people are getting is that it's all done so that a U.S. national coach doesn't have to do the 10 seconds of research right. to find out when a kid's birth year yeah, is. Yeah, that, that was exactly where I was going to uh, – my brain's going, well, this is this whole thing sounds like uh, a way for U.S. soccer to, to just make it easier on them when the paperwork comes for international competition. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so – and it's – I mean, you really have to do that basic research anyway, because you may, if a scout may be watching a U14 game, well, that kid could be a U13. Maybe that kid's playing up. Yeah. Maybe that kid is, you know, Freddie Adu, and he's playing, he's, you know, a really young kid playing at a higher age group. So no one seems to understand why th- that needs to be in place. Now, the other initiative that U.S. soccer is doing, the Small Spited Games Initiative, has its own issues. They were at first mandating a very specific field size, and then clubs came back and said, yes, it's going to cost us, you know, thousands of dollars to tear up our fields, you know, if we have permanent goals in place and uh, restriping everything, probably putting down new turf, and people were saying, oh, okay, well, right. we, we may make it a little bit more flexible. And then the heading initiative is spun out of litigation, and everybody understands why there needs to be some uh, – we need to have some national guidelines on that. That's overdue. There are details to work out, but I think I think we're at a good stage with that. It's really the birth year where people think U.S. soccer is just sort of pushing this and then not communicating very clearly. And the funny thing is now everyone's scared of saying the wrong thing. And so that's why we haven't had any clarifications from people, and that's why all local clubs or a lot of local clubs are in a wait-and-see mode because we had an incorrect birth year chart out at one point, uh, and so that had to be withdrawn, and then we had to have extra clarification on that. And so now there's so many rumors floating around about what you do with small side games that you know nobody wants to say anything right now. Well, and I, another, go ahead. Well, no, I I also want to just put a pin in the. Well, I want to come to the the question of. Uh, of the physical element. I mean, certainly some of this is painted, Bo, as let's go to birth year registration because of some of the issues that school year registration has caused in the physical differences between players. Am I right about that? Well, yeah. Some people think that this will be painted as a possible solution to what they call the relative age effect, which is where you tend to get people who are born earlier in a year and that actually has been used as sort of a bludgeon against the people who are raising questions about the birth year initiative. I mean, I've not, you won't hear it so much from U.S. soccer. And U.S. soccer, to its credit, says this is not a solution to the relative age effect. You may still have our U-17 coach pick a team in which, you know, half the team was born in January through April, which if you go back and look at the last U.S. U-17 roster, yeah, it skewed very heavily uh, January, February, March on that roster. And this is U.S. soccer is not building a solution to that, but there are some people who will say, oh, you're complaining about it? Well, your kid must have uh, a September birthday, and so he's always been in, like, the first part of the school year, uh, now, and now uh, you're worried about him not being in there. When that's a... Well, <laughs> just yeah, an indicative... It's a pretty silly objection. Right, well, it's, uh, it's indicative of focusing on the wrong things then, right? Right, yeah, it's it's not... That's not a serious part of the discussion. That's not what people are worried about. People are worried about, first of all, at the rec level, they're worried about uh, kids, you know, kindergarten kids starting with first graders. And that just be, being in a structured environment for a year is such a huge difference in maturity. And so to say that a kindergartner has to go play with a first grader, okay, physically, they may be close. You may have a kid who's born in October is in kindergarten, and then the kid who's born in June is in first grade. Physically, there may not be much difference. The maturity level is just completely different. And I would hate to coach those teams. Yeah. <laughs> and I would hate to put my kid on those teams. So that's at one level. Then as you climb up, one big question is, okay, you do the birth year registrations. 
you will have teams that will be roughly half eighth graders and half ninth graders. What happens when the ninth graders are playing high school soccer? Which for non-development academy teams, you know, that's, that's legitimate. There are a lot of kids who will go play high school soccer, and then they'll have a bunch of eighth graders who go, we don't have enough people to make a team. So, and then the same thing with uh, high school seniors. If you have a group that's high, half high school juniors, half high school seniors, well, the next year, half of that team graduates. Now, there are solutions to all these things, but the, the fact that they just were not thought through. Yeah. And the fact that we're saying that, okay, well, these mandates are going into effect, and even though U.S. soccer says that you have until September 2017 to do it, most places are going ahead and going with it next year, and we don't have these solutions. We don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Bo, I mean, to, to draw this, to, to, to draw this out, to pull back uh, a bit from the, uh, you know, from the administrative issues that are facing these, the people running these clubs, from the, the families that are going to be affected by, by the change directly. Uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, this is, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but I think what you've, what you've communicated here is that we've got several issues where U.S. soccer's leadership is coming into question because of an inability to, to communicate and, as you said, some question as to thinking through the ramifications of all of these things. Is there a sense there that, that U.S. soccer is sort of just willy-nilly changing policy and, 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 and really not doing the due diligence? I mean, I, look, you can't get bogged down in, in, in polling people across the country before you make a decision. And when I talked to Tab Ramos on Friday, he was very clear about, you know, we need to have decisions made top down in order to make things happen, but there's got to be a middle ground. Right. And the sense that I had before NSCAA uh, was mostly, you know, anecdotal from people I corresponded with and from people in my community who know that, you know, I'm, hey, I'm the local soccer writer guy and, you know, let's, you know, let's complain to Bo about this <laughs> and get him to write something. And then, but after NSCAA, I, it, I see that it is nationwide. This is, uh, this is not just something that my neighbors are worried about. This is something that people are suspicious of and they're angry about it and they want clarification. They want answers and they want a little bit of input. I mean, they want to be able to, they, they had to go back and say, look, we can't tear up this field. You know, we can't, uh, this, be a very common youth soccer field in our area and beautiful downtown Maryfield uh, has, you know, goals that are rooted into the ground, you know, yeah. for, uh, for small sided games. If you change the dimensions of the field, you have to go tear, tear everything up. Yeah. And so that's had to, they've had to go back and communicate with that in no sense. Then here's the other thing. A lot of people have come out of NSCAA saying, where was us soccer? There weren't many people in there. Ramos was supposed to be on one of these panels. I believe he was supposed to be on the panel that I mentioned that had Eric Imler and uh, Sam Snow and Ian McMahon. Uh -huh. um, I, heard he, I heard he did some radio show, <laughs> but he didn't do the panel. Yeah, you know, I failed on that front, Bo, to ask him what happened with that panel. You know, being disconnected from the panel myself, I did see some tweets, and then in the middle of the conversation, it just sort of got away from me. So I apologize for not checking with him. Um, he is the youth technical director. But but again, and, and maybe you can give me a sense here. And for people who are on the outside looking in, sort of that's a that's a title. It's got some sort of meaning. We certainly know Tab Ramos as the head coach of the U twenties and a guy who has some influence, at least at the elite level, of developing players. But what does that mean for everybody else? The thousands upon thousands of kids who are never going to kick a ball in a serious competition in their life. I'm not sure. <laughs> and I'm not sure anybody's sure. I'm not sure anyone's sure where this is all coming from. I mean, for a while, the, the point of, uh, the point of contact for a lot of this was, uh, Dave Chesler, who was a coach and development guy within U.S. soccer, but his role has just changed. So at this point, I'm not even sure who to ask. And then you have the leaders of these organizations, U.S. Youth Soccer and AYSO, and they're in a wait and see mood. And I felt really bad for Sam Snow. Uh, coaching guy from USU soccer has been in that role for a long time and terrific resource, uh, terrific guy to talk with and very enthusiastic and really likes to think through things. And then um, he has to go up there and 
people are launching into him, saying, well, how can, how can this be? How can it be that we're supposed to be playing small-sided games in the fall, and we haven't decided on some of the rules? Mm. You know, are we supposed to be doing throw-ins? Are we supposed to be doing uh, at U8? Or, uh, what are we doing in terms of how does heading figure can, into can, this? Can how I, are we going to, there are basic questions we haven't yeah. figured out. But can I, can I just ask you, from your perspective, uh, again, having been in that world um, with with your own kids and, and writing the book uh, Single Digit Soccer again, Amazon dot com, go find it. Uh, certainly, talking to people, being uh, being someone who, a noted soccer writer, um, uh, uh, you know, covering the sport from the highest level in this country all the way down. Is it look the heading thing? I get. I mean, especially uh, with with the 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 more uh, the, the greater awareness about concussions. And concussion symptoms mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, cumulative effect of heading. I, I understand that maybe there needs to be a policy. Are we just are, are we just making this too complicated in some ways? I, I mean, birthday registration. I guess that that depends. You know, that affects how clubs interact with each other. Which I kind of get why you have to have that standardized. But on things like you just mentioned, are we doing throw-ins at U eight? Are we? You know, how what 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 size are these sides going to be at U seven, U eight, U nine? Sometimes I feel like maybe just give the kids a ball and let them play. Right. Well, that's and there are certainly programs like that that uh, that help out. And then um, I think with U.S. soccer, it's interesting because for a long time, U.S. soccer's had sort of a laissez-faire attitude toward youth soccer, and it's you know, oh, you guys can do whatever you want, and that's why we have such a weird environment where you can have two clubs that are five miles away from each other who never play because one is in this elite league right, and the other is in this right. elite league because yeah. that that's the landscape now. You know, it's a free-for-all. You can have coaches come in and sell all sorts of nonsense, and there's nobody to uh, say, wait a minute, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. I mean, you can have – and, you know, the heading initiatives, I've seen – you know, clubs come out and, you know, have their U8s run through heading drills, and by U9 and U10, they're whacking the ball up to a big target forward like they've got Abby Wambach on the field. <laughs> and, and so it's overdue for U.S. soccer to come in. And there was an interesting session at last year's NSCAA with people from Germany. And, of course, Germany, we all look at, uh, at, we all look at that now as the, the big, Example of what we should be doing, right? It's the it's Das reboot, and uh, the one of the coaches there was asked about the U.S. youth landscape, and he said, "Well, it's interesting that you have so many uh, players in this, so many authorities, so many organizations. In Germany, you have one, all run by the federation. So there and." There is, again, with, with heading especially, that's initiative that's overdue. And uh, standardizing a few things is certainly a good idea. And at some point, it'd be nice to have the Federation just be you know, a resource where you can check on nonsense. Yeah. You know, <laughs> just check things and maybe redo coaching education in a meaningful way. That was another issue that came up. And you know, the fact that, look, everybody starts as a rec player. Nobody steps out and starts playing, you know, for the LA Galaxy U1 Development Academy team. Everyone starts at the rec level. They start with parent coaches. The parent coaches need to be better educated. So that's an issue. That's something U.S. soccer should be taking yeah. a leadership role in. So to some extent, there these mandates and or this role that U.S. soccer is starting to take is overdue. It's just that they've gone about it. Without gathering the input they needed, well, and then without even communicating what some of these things really mean, right. and then sort of going into a turtle shell when all this stuff came back on them, and it's really difficult what? to get comment and clarification from U.S. soccer now. And again, they weren't in their CAA panels. Uh, I think Brad Friedel did one panel, but then was withdrawn from another, and just seemed like U.S. soccer people had a very low profile. You, didn't walk around bumping into U.S. soccer people at NCAA this year like you normally do. I don't know. Maybe they don't like Baltimore. Uh, <laughs> what's not li- What's not to like about Baltimore? But I look. I, I hate to be. I hate to be the ultimate cynic here. And generally speaking, I'm positive about the future of American soccer. I, you know, obviously, the, there's all this latent potential that we're not meeting. But then you get into the question of why aren't we meeting it? And and, and look, I, I understand. 
I'll be the first one to say that you know even thirty years of of legitimate serious competition or, or tr- striving to be uh, one of the best uh, countries in the world doesn't necessarily lead to, to to that to that end. You need more time. You got to figure out a lot of things. But but it seems like we're still in that 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 mode of unraveling everything that was built in the seventies and the eighties, Bo. And 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 until we're done with that process, maybe we don't take any of the steps forward that people want to see. And maybe it's just not possible. I mean, is it, is it wrong to think that on some level, American soccer is going to succeed in spite of itself? You know, there was a, there was some thought about that recently. That um, in one of the sessions I went to, it was the one that I say this session was the, was more controversial than Eric Winalda's session, and it was a, an AYSO official who said that look, elite players are going to succeed in spite of what we do. And, uh, of course, that's a dangerous thing to say in a room full of coaches. Right. Especially in, the, especially in this country where coaches, you know, it, it's a free market. They often market themselves as having, you know, the answers that other coaches do not. And you know, that's the culture I think that we need to start getting away from, which is the idea of the the uh, cult of personality well- well, but well, 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 let me stop you there because it's interesting. I mean, I, my, my one experience covering youth soccer, and it was an elite level, was the Jefferson Cup, which I'm sure that you're familiar with, down in Richmond right. a couple of years back. And I had an experience where I was writing for Soccer Wire at the time. I was covering. That was my, my job. But then I went home and I had some ruminations and I wrote about a specific coach. And I, you know, I didn't like what he was doing and my, my assessment of him. He ended up reading this, attacking me, or not attacking me, coming at me via email, very upset because I was impugning his reputation, which ultimately leads to his ability, you know, affects his ability to get jobs. Because at the time I had whatever kind of profile I had, it was very limited, but apparently it mattered to him. We're talking about a game that is fundamentally different from so much of what we do in terms of sports in this country. And yes, there are dysfunctions in the American football world, excuse me, in the basketball world, in the baseball world. But generally speaking, coaches in those sports are judged by how many games they win, right? I mean, if you're a football coach, you win games, you get a better job, you'll win more games, you get a better job until you're coaching in the NFL. Uh, basketball is mostly the same thing. Coaches are not judged on how many players they develop. And in soccer, that should be the metric. How do we change the, the American mentality about those things? Right, it should be, and the good news is that you do see a lot of clubs now uh, tout the players that they have developed, and that's that's a good that's a good step. And uh, also, part of to answer the question, you know, yes, coaches in other sports are judged by how many games they win, but how much of that is it? You know, you ten or you or you fourteen even. I mean, it's high school coaches. Yes, high school coaches, and although even in high school, it can be. Not just a question of, you know, how many, uh, players, how much they're winning and how, but how many players they develop. Even in college sports, I actually do hear that argument sometimes. I remember hearing, I mean, you know, I, I went to Duke and there's some people may have heard that. And, uh, no. there was a question, <laughs> yeah, there was a question on Mike Krzyzewski for years saying, oh, well, he takes these kids and, you know, gets to the final four every year and so forth. But, um, but how many good players does he send to the NBA? So, it is a little bit of a question in those sports as well. And in those sports, you know, I never hear somebody, oh, this guy is a real guru for U12 basketball. Yeah, I, I don't hear that. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, again, I, I, and I don't know, I mean, if it was as easy as I said. The, the, and, and, of course, the, the, the exception here, the exceptionalism of American sports is that those other sports – we are not trying to develop players to compete with the rest of the world or to send on to Barcelona or Real Madrid. We're only concerned about how many kids end up, you know, uh, the, the, we're only concerned about winning because the, there's always going to be an elite class that ends up at the highest level in the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball for, for the most part. Major League Baseball is slightly different. But, but I, I, I think that soccer on its face here, again, I, I said this the other day and I think it's true, Bo, and you can, if, if you disagree, I would love to hear it. If you agree, please expound that we, that we build our system backwards. And, and this is sort of what Klinsman says about the pyramid being upside, upside down. It's the same, it's, it's the same notion that the constructs of youth soccer and participatory soccer came so far ahead of what we do at the professional level that now that we're trying to, to add things on top of that, it, it, it's obviously a problem. Right. It's, 
it's a bit awkward because we're trying to put an infrastructure in place that that wasn't there. I mean, for, for decades, uh, it was just all. You know, there were no professional clubs involved with youth soccer for uh, with the time you know you and I were growing up and so forth. And you know, I my first experience with soccer was playing eleven v eleven in first grade with uh, uh-huh. you know a bunch of American football coaches who had read up read a few of the soccer rules and tossed the ball out. And you know, that's <laughs> that's what it was. And yeah, that is all changed. Yeah, th- this is all, to some extent, it's all natural growing pains, and there, there's always, there's always so much you can do to uh, put that environment in place. And it's why I, I really hate it when I see sort of the, the fringe element and uh, on the Twitter sphere and so forth, uh, saying, "Well, everything in U.S. soccer seems artificial." Well. It is because it's newer. It has to and be. So, it has to be. There's exactly. no. There's no other alternative. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, you know. Oh, you just started this club. That's fake. Well. well yeah. <laughs> but but it, it had to. Someone had to start a club at yes, some point. And, exactly. You know, we can't. We don't have a time machine. We can't go back and ensure continuity. You know. It, yes. It was in a wonderful world if uh, Bethlehem Steel and all the ASL teams had started youth clubs and we had. Uh, and that's how things have evolved. That's not how things evolved in this country. And yeah. so now you have, there is, and the other thing is that everybody wants to be elite. And that's, that just causes a lot of friction. Yeah. It's why you have a lot, um, why you have these teams that have been sort of recruited and they don't want to be split apart and so forth because they, uh, there are there are many complex interlocking issues there. I mean, you can have, you know, to some extent, hurting people into development academies and other elite teams should be relatively easy, and the birth year issue shouldn't be so bad because then you're getting away from, at six years old, wanting to play with your friends. By age 15, maybe you want to play, maybe your friends are yeah. people who are serious about soccer right? as opposed right. to just your neighbors. And so... It should be easier to uh, implement birth year and things like that that are, uh, you know, designed for serious soccer players at that age. But you still, you know, you're never going to take away the social aspect of it. I mean, this is what this is how bonds are made between families is in yeah. is in clubs and so forth. And so it's it can be traumatic when you have to move from one place to another. And I I've had. A, one of my sons had, you know, changed clubs in this past year, and um, you know he rolls with it very well because he rolls rolls with a lot of things very well. But that, it's um, it's still a big difference, and it's still a shock to the system for the family. Yeah, you know, but we haven't had a chance. I I, I didn't. I wasn't going to have you break down Eric with all his speech. I mean, certainly we could have a discussion <laughs> with Eric. I'm sure he would love to come on and do that. But but he did say something that you highlighted, and I heard him say actually on my show on Friday ahead of his speech, and he talked about the travesty of keeping kids from playing high school soccer. Just give me a, a sense. There's obviously a development academy rule. If your club is involved in the development academy system with U.S. soccer, U.S. soccer dictates that you're not allowed to play high school and development academy soccer. So give me your sense of, of both Winalda's perspective and then your perspective briefly. Well, I can, I can sort of set the stage for you. And most of Eric's uh, talk this time was about the pro level. Uh, he said he covered youth more last year. This year he wants to talk more about pro. And so there was a lot of promotion relegation talk and, and just challenging people uh, in MLS. And so, and people, he, he got a few laughs in the crowd. You know, he got people to clap every, a couple of times. He got, well, he got people to clap when I said that I agreed with him now that we should go, MLS should go on an August to May schedule. <laughs> and so he said, everybody applaud. That's a big step. Um, but, it seemed to be sort of out of the blue right at the end. And he said, by the way, it is just a travesty that we tell kids they cannot play high school soccer because that's so important to growth as a player and as a person. And the room just erupted. And it was at the very end of the session. <laughs> so, so he didn't really expound upon it in that context. He may have said more yeah. when he was, when he was talking to you, um, but I've heard it from other people as, as well. I mean, uh, there was a panel on development academy and other issues either last year or the year before, and Aleko Escandarian said, high school soccer made me a more responsible person. Yeah, yeah. 
it, so there is that issue. It, 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 it's it. I think, and I'll wrap this up here, Bo. I think that that specific issue uh, is a great sort of um, um, example of the push pull we have right now within youth development. If you want to put development or just youth soccer in 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 in. Do we want to, are we going to be super serious all the time and really make this about developing the best players? And first of all, is that squeezing too hard and we're going to break a bunch of eggs? Or can we be more relaxed about it and let, let the American sports ethos sort of drive whether or not we get uh, elite soccer players? I think people, and I'm sure you know this, Bo, people feel like that if they're not doing something, then they're failing. It's not about necessarily making those things work. It's about always actively addressing some issue. Making some change, doing, you know, being active to the point of losing sight of whether or not those things are actively actually helping. Well, it's a basic aspect of coaching, and especially at the youth level, you, uh, we are all warned in various coaching sessions about joystick coaching. That you know, we don't want to be doing that. We want kids to learn to make decisions on their own. And yeah, a lot of people will say that their games are really honed in free play, you know, playing with neighbors. Ajax actually requires its kids. You know, they don't have, the youngest kids don't go to Ajax for training five days a week. Mm-hmm. They're required to go play in their neighborhoods. Right. So, yeah, there there is that aspect of it. There is the fact that, you know, yeah, U.S. soccer let everything go, let they fair for a while, and still produced a few decent players yeah. uh, here and there. Uh, you could make the case now that, you know, look, we did, uh, U.S. did better in youth competitions when they sent a bunch of high school kids with bad mullets to go play in these. Yeah, well, we these maybe bring back the high school kids, but don't don't bring back the mullets, Bo. Let's let's just avoid no, the no, mullets. No, we won't bring back the mullets. But the solution can the solution to U.S. youth soccer problems will not be German. It will not be yeah. Icelandic. Right. It will not be English. Right. We can take aspects of those. But the situation, the culture is so different. You can't change the entire country's culture and the uh, the fact that it does build around schools. Yeah. You cannot yep. take that. And the fact that soccer is not the most popular sport yet, maybe one day it will be, you cannot change the entire country for the benefit of creating a better national soccer team. That, I, think that's, I think that's a fantastic place. Mike Drop from Bodor right there. On look, it, it's a it's a complicated country with complicated sports issues and complicated soccer issues, and and again, as you said, there's no template here. America's got to figure it out on its own, and we're still working through that. Lots of issues. Let's uh, let's let go. Let Bo go. Thank you very much for the time, Bo. Again, everybody, go to Amazon.com. Find single digit soccer. You know about long range goals already. You should have read that one. If you haven't, go get that as well, Bo. Thank you so much for the time. Go go uh, go get yourself ready. Toilet paper, water, uh, bacon. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever you need, Bo. I, I forgot about bacon. Thanks for reminding there me. You know, I forgot to download. <laughs> Bo so. Durr joining Always us. Always pleasure, Jason. Thank you uh, from. Uh, uh, obviously, no, noted soccer writer. Go pick up his books. All right, let's step aside. We'll come back. Phone lines open here on a Wednesday. Soccer morning, worldsoccertalk.com. Be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Back on Soccer Morning on a Wednesday right here at worldsoccertalk.com. Thanks to Bo Durr for his appearance on the program. The phone lines are now open at 646-832-3909. Wait, yeah, 3909. That's backwards on your screen because I'm, yeah. If you if I could flip it around and somehow figure out how to do it mirrored, Trevor could like bring it. He can do that, right? We still haven't talked about this. Can you bring up graphics as I'm moving my hands around? Is that too much? Six four six eight three two thirty nine zero nine. Um, Benny Failhaber, we have to talk about it. I want your thoughts on this. Is Benny right? I mean, look, Benny is obviously not a U.S. international. Per Jurgen Klinsmann, he's he's not gotten a call up. He's played some very successful seasons with Sporting Kansas City. Been one of the most creative, uh, uh, effective players in the league out of midfield, and he can't get a call up. It's clearly over for Benny Feilhaber as long as Jurgen Klinsmann is head coach. 
But is he right about the way Klinsman is coaching this team? And is he is he right that Klinsman is wrong? I guess is the question. And I haven't even gotten to what Bruce Arena said yesterday, which I think is worth talking about. And I guess since we weren't here yesterday on Soccer Morning on WorldSoccerTalk.com, some of you would still like to talk about Jordan Morris, like Roberto in Connecticut. What's up, Roberto? Hey, Jason. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I just before I mention Jordan Morris, I just want your opinions regarding the um, the possible transfer, or at least what I'm hearing of uh, Alexander Pato to Chelsea. Do you think that this is another um, another failed striker for the the Blues, or will this be something different? It's 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 definitely. I saw twelve million today. It's definitely mm-hmm. a, it's definitely a bargain buy for Chelsea. There's no doubt about that, right, Roberto? I mean, this is a guy. Yeah, of course. This is a guy who had success in Italy and and was on a track, and then injuries blew him up. And I know he's been okay. He's been pretty good in Brazil. To me, this smacks very much of of Wagner uh, Wagner Love going to uh, to Monaco. It's two clubs mm-hmm. in difficult positions. Who are now Monaco's financial situation might be slightly worse or a, or significantly worse than Chelsea's, but they're both clubs who are looking for a a a temporary a, a temporary bit of help, but don't want to break the bank to find it, right? Yes, of course. But um, you look at the. We also want to look at the age difference between both Wagner Love and uh, Alexander Pato. You know, one's uh, I believe thirty six, Pato's twenty seven. So there could be. There's a huge difference there as well. Yeah, Pato's only twenty six, so he's still young. I mean, that's the thing. He he did so much in Italy at a very young age, which is clearly kind Uh of, you know, that kind of that kind of gives you the wrong sense of his career. Uh, Wagner Love's only thirty one. I mean that that it's not oh, like okay. it's not like he's ancient by any stretch of the imagination. I didn't want to portray Wagner Love as ancient, but to me Wagner Love is more fa- okay. And, and certainly again, Monaco and Chelsea are on different levels. Wagner Love is more desperation than Pato, but even Pato smacks a little bit of, you know, wh- again, where do we go find a player who we know can score goals at the top level or has done it before? Uh, who's available for a decent price? Okay, well, you know how many guys like that are in the, are in the world? And again, Pato, it's not like Pato's a failure in Brazil. I mean, I think he's been okay. I haven't watched any of his games. I can't tell you for certain, but based on his goal scoring record, he's at least capable of, of of hitting a few. And and it's not as though Chelsea's going to throw Pato out into you know their front uh, their their lineup and and depend on him to score every time out. Yeah, yeah, and I'm um, going back to your statement about how he's doing in Brazil. I've seen him sometimes to São Paulo and Corinthians, and he's been he's been outstanding for what I've seen. Okay, but, um, well, there you go. It's all going to take it's all going to take time. It's all going to take time now, and uh, I think this probably will increase some chances on going back to the Brazil squad again, maybe yeah, for yeah. the uh, the Copa America or sure. for the upcoming World Cup qualifiers. Sure, absolutely. There's uh, you know, who knows? I mean, they. He got, again, we kind of forgot about Pato for a while because he he got he got injured in the and the stint at AC Milan ended uh, pretty disappointingly. Uh, but but he's rebuilt things in in Brazil and give him credit for that. All right, so so Jordan Morris, Roberto. Yeah, yeah. For me, um, I think for him, it, someone his age. We look at so many players who have in history that played for the United States national team have gone to Europe before making a professional MLS career. In the case of Morris, I mean, we, we've seen he's been perfectly well in the NCAA, but Germany's a different level. And from what I've been hearing, the offer that he was receiving was at least, at best, a, a substitute. But just um, your opinion about this whole um, saying yes to MLS and no to Germany. Well, I I'm not sure that I see it that way exactly. Um, and you have to consider who Jordan Morris is as a, as a person, and, and none of us know him, but what we the, the clues that we have... And again, the connections to that club in Seattle are pretty significant. I mean, people in Seattle will tell you it's not just the fact that his dad is the medical director for the Sounders, but that he has a direct and, and close relationship with Siggy Schmidt. Um, you know, Jordan Morris is the guy who could have come out after his sophomore year of college and gone pro with the Sounders and already be a year in. Jordan Morris is, instead chose to stay at Stanford. He took the road... Not the road less traveled necessarily, but certainly the the less obvious road for a player um, who has the potential to be you know to be a star. Okay, so so basically what we're saying is Jordan Morris is not conventional in the sense that he's chasing, chasing, chasing whatever the most 
what obvious professional success is. Because if he was, he would have signed with Werder Bremen. I don't care that they're in the drop zone. I don't care that they've got some some endemic problems. Will Parchment on Twitter was dropping knowledge yesterday that their their style of play, the number of passes, how direct they are, is a disaster. That they are probably the worst soccer in Germany right now in the top division. And maybe that doesn't play into Jordan Morris, who's not a target forward. Uh, so there's that to consider. But I, I think that if Jordan Morris was just about the glory, he would have gone and signed with, with Werder Bremen. Jordan Morris is about something else. And, and he's more, this is the thing, Jordan Morris is more Landon Donovan than I think than a lot of people want to admit. And that may serve him well or it may be a disaster. Him signing with Seattle sort of feels like a big deal for ML, for MLS, but I think it remains to be seen how he settles in and whether or not he plays because he may not he may have a dip. He's not going to he's not going to to go he's he's not going to travel a a straight line of success over success, if you know what I mean. Yes, I absolutely understand, but um you look at how many fans all want the um you want all your big American stars to go play in Europe and yeah. all these big leagues around the world. It's not necessarily that because you never know what they'll end up in. I think that the kid is still young, thankfully. That, that's the thing. Uh, I believe 21. So the development in the MLS will probably serve him well. And I, who exactly. Knows, maybe I, there, are, there is going to be interest in a few years. I want Jordan Morris, who's just who just scored 20 goals in MLS at the age of 23, to get an opportunity to go to, to Europe and improve. Right? That's the Jordan Morris. I, yes. I and I don't know if that's going to happen, but let's 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 imagine it does. That's the Jordan Morris I want to I want to see go to, to to Europe, probably. Germany or England or maybe not England. England has done us wrong recently. But Germany, Spain, maybe Spain. We don't we don't get guys in Spain anymore. Uh, it'd be it'd be nice. That's the Jordan Morris I want to see signed with with a Werder Bremen, hopefully outside of the the relegation zone. The Jordan Morris at twenty one, who's never played a single minute of professional competitive soccer. That's not the Jordan Morris I want to see at Werder Bremen because I don't I don't think Jordan Morris is ready for that move. And, and maybe that's a reflection of, of college soccer, but it's also a reflection of who Jordan Morris is, and the fact that you know he's not going to come, he's not going to get playing time right off the bat at a place like Werder Bremen. It's, it's not, especially when they're in the relegation zone. It's not going to happen. So I don't want to see him rooted to the bench or relegated to the reserves at this point in his in his development. Correct. And you look at the, um, I guess you look at the relationship and how close it is to the city of Seattle. And of course, um, like you mentioned, his father working at the club. I think that serves him well. And it's, and hopefully he develops into this great striker, not only for MLS and their development as a good league, but also for the United States national team. Yeah. Look, and Trevor's pointing out that Werner Bremen has, um, a deep striker crisis and there could be a door open for Jordan Morris. That, 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 that is certainly something to consider. But for me, Again, it's th- there is less certainty there. You know, he he has to he would have yeah. to develop the respect and trust of the coaching staff at Werder Bremen over time. That's not going to happen the second he signs if he signed. Seattle not knows the language. See, and, and yeah, there's culture, there's everything else. Adjustment period for a young guy. Seattle knows him. Okay, they know him. They know exactly what he can do. They they've got the book on him. If anybody is in a is in a position to trust Jordan Morris right off the bat at 21 years of of age, having just turned professional, it's the Seattle Sounders, and I think that's probably still, at least for a couple of seasons, the best place for him to be. Right? Absolutely. Right. And uh, we hope he's a success. I think yeah. you and I hope he's a success. Of course. Wherever he is. Of course. I wish him the best. You got anything else, Roberto? No, no, thank All you right. so much. Have a good day, Jason. Roberto up in Connecticut, yeah, fantastic call, as always. And let's uh, turn to, it seems like these guys come in a pair sometimes. Roberto in Connecticut, Robert in L.A. What's up, Robert? Hey, it's, uh, maybe it's a coincidence, or it could be fake. It could be. It could be, Robert. You never know. What's on your mind? Hey, I wanted to talk about uh, the draft, the MLS Super Draft that happened this weekend, and uh, on on last Friday, you were on with uh, John Tanwell, and you read my tweet uh, saying about how, and uh, and uh, John Tanwell made a good point, but he, you know, I don't even remember my tweet, but it was like how, to me, it seems like the draft is like like a pipeline to free labor, since you don't have to pay like a transfer fee like the rest of the world does. Yes, I, I understand what you're saying. Go ahead. And I, I was looking at, and I, 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 I'm not judging the, the um, they're not on the players, but this will be like, yeah, they're not professional, and uh. And I know they're they're young, but they're also adults. But I was like, you know how the rest of the world does? Like they go into like lower divisions and they and they get players, and then that will keeps like lower division clubs like 
uh, in uh, in business or something. And I was just wondering if you ever see a time where MLS will go into the lower divisions like the NASL or like I'm, I'm not saying like buying like fifty like well, million well. dollars in transfer fees, but like maybe like 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 they did like uh, decades ago, like. Teams will buy like will spend ten thousand dollars on a player. Like What's happening? I know MLS and the cost both have a, a complicated relationship, but you're, you're not saying there's like a team like 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 Miguel Ibarra. There's one example. Sure, there you go. There, that's where I was going to go, Robert. I think like we just don't have a developed enough professional structure for that to be a regular thing for. Uh, and and that you you mentioned Miguel Ibarra. Now that's a sale to to Mexico. There have been other players who have made. I think uh, Walter Restrepo just made the move from uh, from NASL to uh, to the to the Philadelphia Union, and and, and that's a guy who has been starring uh, in the in the NASL for the last couple of years. I, I think what we've got to see is the the teams below the MLS level start to really have, you know, start to develop players at a younger age that MLS is going to be interested in and might come in for. But then again, at the same time, you have the parallel of MLS investing a lot of money or in a lot of effort anyway into their own academies. And that's where, so, so let's imagine the New York Red Bulls, Robert. Okay. And you've got your academy. You got a bunch of talent. You're, you're very lucky in, in the region that you're, that you're in. You got all of Jersey. There's definitely some talent to be had in New York. There may be some players in Connecticut, whatever. And you have you have to bring through some players. You're like, we need to, to bring in some young talent. Do you start going and scouting the NASL Cosmos or the USL Rochester Rhinos for talent for young players? Or do you go to your academy? I'm not saying it's an either-or all the time, but in terms of what MLS teams spend and how their, their money is, is divided in, in effort... I think what we're going to see is a, a long period of MLS trying to lean on its own academies before we get to a point where teams at the NASL and USL level are producing players who are then being bought by MLS teams. Well, yeah. Well, there's also like, you know, like in that area, the, the Cosmos area, but they, I think they want to go international. Like sure, the whole sure. right uh, situation that happens here. Yeah, the, the Cosmos have a very different sort of mindset about these things, and that's probably good for American soccer to have somebody who's willing to do things outside the box and, and, and think about it in a different way. Go ahead. Well, you also, yeah, I'll, I'll just say one more thing on this. Uh, you, you had, like, maybe two weeks ago, you had, like, you had a, uh, an expert on what's going on with the Atlanta Silverbacks and the Rochester Randalls, uh, and they're, like, you know, they're, they're folding, and like, it just makes me sad to hear, like, when lower division teams uh, can't, like, you know, over, uh, can't compete or, you know, stay, uh, stay operational. Yeah, and you know what? There's um, there are plenty of rumors out there, and we're trying to track the thing. We're trying to track what's happening in um, in Atlanta. There's plenty of rumors out there that the Silverbacks are not necessarily dead yet, uh, and they could pop up in a different league, whether it's uh, USL or um, or MPSL. In fact, here's the story from the Atlanta Journal Constitution uh, three days ago uh, from uh, trying to find the name of the writer here. Apologies, loading on me. Just give me a second, Robert. Uh, I'm not sure who this guy is. There's a picture of him, but no name. Uh, while the Atlanta Silverbacks no longer exist as an NASL franchise, the Atlanta Silverbacks playing in another league is likely. So the owner, Boris, and I'm not going to butcher his last name, said he and partners John Latham and John Harden are considering starting a men's team in the USL or continuing that team, uh, continuing the team that is in the MPSL. So the, the Silverbacks might not... They they might not die completely, Robert. Just uh, if you care about that. Okay, well that's well. It's always bad to hear a team going down. So hopefully, uh, oh, let's hope they uh they go through good times. And also one more thing, uh, one more soccer question. Uh, uh let's actually talk about soccer. Who are you taking, Trey? Uh, Leicester or Spurs? Man, where's that game? Where's that? Where's it? What's happening? Where's it? Is that the? Is in England? <laughs> <laughs> Did you really just do that to me, Robert? Hold on a second. Let me know. No, obviously it's in England. Uh let me let me check and see. That's 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 a game today? Yes, it's okay. an FA Cup replay. Ah, it's an FA Cup game today. All right. So uh in, in if it's an F, if it's an FA Oh, okay, that's right. They did play uh FA Cup uh already. Uh let's see. It's at Leicester. Yeah, Brandon Don played yesterday for Villa, so there's he's getting back in the net, so that's good for him. I would say I will I will take hell, I'll take Leicester. I'll take Leicester at home in a replay, sure. And you got Liverpool Exeter City today as well. I forgot about that one. 
I think Liverpool probably gets uh, gets the business done at Anfield. So, yeah, Leicester and Liverpool today, Robert. All right, cool. I think take my call, Jason. Uh, have a great day. All right, thank happy you very much. They have, yeah, happy Happy New Year on the twentieth, Robert. Really, I think we're past that. I appreciate the call. All right, uh, just a couple more minutes here. Six four six eight three two thirty nine zero nine is the phone number. Jump on in. If you want to talk about anything uh, we've covered so far or bring up a new topic, I'm happy to do that. Uh, yeah, uh, Bo Dura is reminding me that uh, pretty much everything that comes out of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on the soccer front is uh, Doug Roberson. So there you go. Uh, probably the man who wrote that story. I've closed the tab already. 646-832-3909. So Bruce Arena has never been one to hold his tongue. He certainly, um, even in light of of being an MLS stalwart has never necessarily been on board with the way the league operates, despite the fact that this is the man who gamed the system, figured out the system, uh, uh, the original hacker of MLS, you want to put it that way, uh, with, with DC United, a guy who people will tell you maybe did not adhere to every single MLS rule back in the day when he built that juggernaut of a team that won MLS titles in the 90s. Uh, so despite the fact that perhaps he's benefited from the system on some level, he is also a soccer guy who believes it's time uh, to release the shackles on spending. At the same time, he's not so sure that expansion on the level that MLS is doing it is a good idea. Just a couple of quotes here. I think we need to slow down a little bit. What we're what we're not prepared for yet is the size of the league. As the league continues to grow and get bigger, there are issues with travel, there are issues with suitable facilities, things that don't make it easier. Obviously, there are financial rewards for the league when they keep expanding. However, it doesn't necessarily ensure that the product is getting better. You have to be careful and balance that that balance that the right way. And you know what? I don't know about the I don't I don't know about the travel. I don't know about the facilities. It seems like the facilities that we're getting are, are for the most part pretty good. But but Bruce is 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 right in the sense that it can very easily get out of control on the quality front for MLS. You can open up the league to more foreign players, but you're doing that at a, at a cost to the American player. And that's clearly the easiest way to shortcut yourself to keeping the quality level up as you expand the league. You need more players. You're bringing in three, four, five, six teams. That's a lot of players that you're adding to the payroll for Major League Soccer. I happen to be of the belief, and listen, the Galaxy don't have any excuses here either. We have international players. This league should be focused on our domestic players, and we're losing that. We're not the English Premier League where you have these fabulous players from all over the world. I think we need to have the right balance there as well, domestic players to international. I know there are issues in terms of labor law, uh, labor law and immigration status and that type of thing, but I hope we don't lose sight of that. All right, so he's, again, directly, directly addressing this issue of whether or not MLS has lost, lost sight of developing the American player or being the home, the rightful place for the American player to find a job. Uh, to grow the league, you need to have better players. I don't think anyone would say that David Beckham being here was the wrong move, that we were playing a 35-year-old or 36-year-old player by the name of David Beckham. I think those are two sides of it. Having Andrea Pirlo, having Andrea Pirlo and Lampard here and Didier Drogba here is good for the league. You still have the other side of it. I think the American players are not paid enough to be as professional as they need to be. I think a paycheck makes a big different difference in people's attitudes in life. I like this area for Bruce, uh, what he's saying here. Because I've, I've said several times over the course of several years that part of the professionalization of MLS, and trust me, MLS has only been quote-unquote professional on the level that you imagine the rest of the biggest leagues in the world being professional for a, a short period of time. That's about giving a player a paycheck enough so he can focus on his one job. Go be a professional soccer player. Don't worry about running from training to go coach the girls' high school team down the road. Don't worry about what your diet's going to be because you can't afford to buy good food. These things have to be part of the professionalization, and the league's going to improve. You, you might say, well, we can't, you know, we're not necessarily getting better players, but if you take the players you've got and give them a better base a better set of resources, they will be better than the previous generation. That's just, uh, I think that's pretty simple. Uh, let's see. That, and, and here's the quote. We eventually have to get to a point where all of our players are professional players on a first-team roster who don't need to worry about living from paycheck to paycheck. That's my personal feeling. I think a lot of our markets and major cities, I think living at a minimum wage in those markets and asking them to be a professional athlete is asking an awful lot. 
Uh, see. Um, then uh, there's some quality uh, c- comments from Bruce in terms of the level of the league. Talks about the uh, MLS Academy system. Lots here to unpack. Unfortunately, we're running out of time on Soccer Morning at WorldSoccerTalk.com. So maybe we'll carry this discussion over to the Sirius XM show or come back to it tomorrow. Uh, Bruce, an outspoken Bruce Arena is good for MLS. He's getting crotchetier and crotchetier and that's not a word. Crankier and crankier. That's a word. As time goes along, but it's good to see Bruce Arena let fly with the, uh, significant opinions on the state of the league as it moves forward. All right. I think it's a good place to wrap it up. Soccer morning on a Wednesday. Thank you very much for listening again. Apologies for the lack of yesterday's show. It's cold out there. If you live in DC, get out, get your toilet paper and your water and, and your necessities today. Don't wait until tomorrow. Do it today. I'm going out today because they're going to be, those shelves are going to be cleared. Everybody else. Yeah. Laugh at us. We're funny. All right. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Uh, go to Facebook. What else, Trevor? Am I missing anything? No? Yes? Maybe? Possibly? Are we still on the air? Is, is that a thing, even? All right. I, I guess we're done. Thank you very much to Bo Durr. Again, go follow him on Twitter. Uh, the handle is Durr Sport, D-U-R-E Sport. You can also read his his uh, writings at sportsmyriad.com, uh, which is where he did a lot of the uh, breaking down of, of Eric Winalda's, uh, uh seminar at the NSCAA convention, in addition to some of that other stuff he talked about, AYSO and the, uh, the continuing issues that we have in youth soccer in the United States of America. Yep. For as long as as we'll be here covering soccer, there will be issues with the youth game. Soccer Morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com. Talk to you later. <laughs>